Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is Active Directory Best Practices That Frustrate Pen Testers with Jordan Drysdale, Kent Eichler, and Bree sat in as fake Sierra since I was on vacation. Enjoy! Hello to everybody who's on. Hail, hail. Gang's all here indeed. I think, are we good? Can you, all right, can we you... are. And awesome. Uh, we have Kent and Jordan here, two of our testers who also do sysadmin stuff. So. Active Directory best practices, maybe not per Microsoft standards, but per pen tester standards. Yeah. So how do we frustrate ourselves as we wander through networks? Active Directory best practices. And the the idea of it is so wide and uh, carries so much weight that it can mean a lot of different things. And we were going to just like write a blog post that was going to be 400 pages long. So instead of doing that, we tried to get our scope down to what we're going to talk about to something more specific that we deal with um, on a lot more regular basis. So Jordan and I, we don't really deal with Active Directory in like the administrative sense too often where you're creating user accounts and removing user accounts. and you know, working with the support desk and, and the HR to make sure that new user accounts are created. Um, we don't do that. But what we do do is work on client networks and we try to actually break into Active Directory and manipulate it to our own uh, desires and be able to, uh, I guess, get the wind, get the phone, find the data. And, you know, there are some very simple things you can do in Active Directory that might be best practices, they might also not be, but more specifically, they definitely frustrate attackers. And we're going to talk about some of those today. And uh, of course, I am Ken Tyco, this is Jordan Drysdale, checks out on Twitter. Pleasure, happy to be here, happy to have you all indeed. So really what this is based out of is uh, Black Hills Information's efforts toward building configuring, maintaining, and being better at just about everything we do, right? It's something we have to do on a daily basis. So we're asked to come up with some training modules. So we come up with a wireless training module, and then we all tie that back into domains and how our customers operate, right? So we can walk into a network and we can review your wireless, but it really all comes down to and boils back into Active Directory, right? And how that infrastructure is configured and how it's deployed and how it's managed. So what we're trying to do today is talk about the things our customers do in Active Directory that work, that slow us down as pen testers. So, And bear in mind, we're probably not making friends with our coworkers today. <laughs> <laughs> Majority of what we do is, and you'll find on our blog posts and our webcasts, our, our, it's really red team engagements. It's you know trying to be the attacker and trying to exploit all the things. And this is just the opposite of that. So it's a little bit outside of the typical niche for BHIS, but at the same time, uh, we hope you like it. So. Yeah, throughout the slides, uh, most like mostly what Ken says is we are going to be talking about the blue side of things. However, we talk about where our standard attacks come into play, like John's attack tactics series. We use some of those things to demonstrate how to fix and solve those problems in Active Directory. Not hard to make things easy. So there's a lot of things you can do to solve some of these problems. Some of them you deal with the politics of long passwords, right? I mean, that's a huge one. And it more than anything slows down pen testers. If I'm approaching the outside of your network, if I'm approaching the inside of your network, all these things are based on credentials. And if you make it hard for me to guess the passwords your user population has, then, well, we're frustrated, so. And you know, it's, it's also another side of that is when you get into uh, an engagement with a pen test, there's some things that we do very quickly within the first hour of the engagement and it's not uncommon to get wins immediately following that. And we call that kind of the low hanging fruit. It's stuff that is helpful for us because it allows us to get a quick win, but at the same time, it's stuff that we kind of expect anymore. And it's something that's relatively easy to mitigate. And we just call it the low hanging fruit. And if we can get it out of the way, you know, it's stuff that's easy to turn off. We're not talking about a million dollar solution to do it. So, so we are not going to sell you a security solution today. We are going to frustrate our coworkers who are the attackers. Um, that said, if you would like to have a pen test, uh, the address right below is consulting at Black Hills Information Security. I'm not Shameless. Sure. <laughs> Almost everything we do in this slide deck is based on things you can do now today in your Active Directory, whether it's Server 2008 Forest, Server 2012 Forest, and like we deploy in the next couple slides, Server 2016. So, Drew, I'll kind of let you talk about uh, how you set up the infrastructure for doing this webcast. We kind of set up a, a, an environment that we could test some things out, and I'll kind of let you talk about that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, we have a lab that we maintain physically that we can't even begin to compete with uh, Amazon's layers of protection. 
So we deployed an AWS quick start for this, which is a one click, one hour deployment. Thing asks you for a couple of passwords, restore mode, new admin user, and you click and then in an hour, voila, we have a beautiful brand new shiny, which you'll see throughout here, multi-availability zone deployment of Windows Server 2016 domain controllers, remote desktop gateway, and that is the environment we configure for these best practices, right? We get to go test, play with, learn, and then try to exploit. So you kind of talked about that Active Directory inside of Amazon. Obviously, most environments probably wouldn't be set up that way for their enterprise environment, but they might be. I think that your point here is that you can do this, yep. but more importantly, maybe for your blue team is that they can go develop this in an hour and they can deploy and then modify these settings we're gonna talk about and see what the result is, right? Oh, absolutely. How many domain migrations have you uh, successfully uh, executed in your time as a systems admin painlessly <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i don't think i did so, any of painless i think taking a step back if you're going to upgrade your domains and your functional levels and your forests i almost at this point recommend starting clean amazon offers so many layers of protections and so many advantages over the standard on-prem deployment of hardware, of monitoring, of physical security, of compliance, and all those things that with a couple of clicks, if I can spin up a new domain, set up a VPN, and link my workstations to this environment, it's, it's hard for me to keep recommending that people build their own on-prem solutions. So Now, I, did, I think I did mention that we're not going to sell a million-dollar product, right? But I should, we should also mention here that your environment that you set up wasn't necessarily cheap, right? It was oh, no. pretty hot. Yeah, it's running hot for sure. Okay. I think John told me I've got a week to burn it to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it's getting expensive. This then. is definitely the Cadillac of base deployments. <laughs> but depending on budgets and size of environments, this might make sense. I think I think we're looking at a four or $500 a month spend with this. Um, we've got single remote desktop gateway multi-availability zones we've got uh elastic load balancing in front of stuff we've got we've got a lot of these products but anyway this one runs a little hot yes <laughs> but it's secure for this deployment this is a as quick online as possible and then tear down as quick as possible so we haven't managed custom configuration files we haven't implemented things like uh, os sec or ansible things like that but that's what we do for our production systems that we use so basically amazon hates pen testers. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They, they run so many multi-tenant models of firewall protections, of load balancing, that they really are nervous when people come in and start breaking things or attacking things, and they don't know about it. Not that there aren't people all over the internet who attack systems on AWS. It's just as a pen tester representing a firm that could be sued by Amazon, you need to be careful when you approach these things and Definitely not skip pen test authorization forms or not skip, even if you're testing yourself, right? So there's a lot of dangerous situations you can get in on Amazon if you're testing. So I think the idea there is if you've got a web app and you're testing it, your own web app, and you're testing it from Amazon to the web app hosted on Amazon. If you, if you find a chink in that web app that maybe you designed, Amazon's very concerned about how that WAF or that CDN um, reacted to your ability to manipulate and uh, exploit that, that chink. So as much as it is, you know, your application and you built it, they're also very concerned about how their applications are securing those. And if you were able to get an exploit, they're curious about whether or not that exploit is available everywhere in a similar fashion, or if it's just on your application because of a certain thing. And that's why they are very curious about those uh, authorization forms and they want those filled out because they want to know when something that Something gets exploited, they want to know how and why. Yes, absolutely right. So that's where that pen test form covers your organization, your entity from potential legal liability with Amazon. Yeah, so when we talk about XSS, that's fine if you are testing your own application and you aren't identifying an XSS flaw in Amazon's uh, load balancer or Amazon's web app firewalls or, or some layer of that process where they go multi-tenant, right? We have an application, but we put a WAF in front of it. And in front of that WAF is a load balancer. And if I hit something along that chain where I have identified a flaw in Amazon's load balancer, that is a big problem across all the tenants of that service. That's what that's what we're saying here. And that's what Amazon's gonna be really concerned about, including not just on web applications, but in the deployment of Active Directory as well. Um, if you Absolutely. are able to exploit something, they're gonna to wanna to know why and how, so. 
So yes, cover yourself. So that aside, that was kind of uh, how we configured our, our baseline environment in Amazon. And we're going to talk about some of the, the stuff in Active Directory that you can do to really slow down an attacker. And this is, list is not necessarily comprehensive. There's a lot of things you can do out there. But these are things that you can start from the beginning of a deployment at, or you can uh, add to a deployment that you've already had. You know, a, a very mature environment could still benefit from some of these things. You know, you're going to have some uh, change processes that you have to worry about there. But things that we'll, we'll go through today are going to be naming conventions, uh, some of the group policies, attack tactics that are out there. We discuss application whitelisting, uh, some interesting things with Sysmon, and also some uh, some laps, uh, which we'll get into uh, later. And just for clarification, Don would like to know why you're showing a dead horse. This is the same stuff we preach in all our webcasts, across all environments, across all our reports. We say the same things. You have a weak password policy. Why? Because we guessed passwords on your networks. We use the same attack tactics, almost universally in order. It right? sounds like you're beating a dead horse. Is that okay? I, does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. Okay. You're definitely beating that poor horse. All yes. right. So let's talk about Active Directory and the domains. Um, you've got an Active Directory domain set up. You've got users in it, and the key thing that I want to point out here is, you know, inside the forest, you're gonna have multiple domains. You're gonna have functional levels inside that uh, forest. And you're going to have schema that has different attributes for users, computers, uh, policies, all that's going to be stored in the schema. And you've got the domains that you may maybe need to migrate, you need to upgrade them. And these are things that you need to all be, I guess I want to say wearisome of. And the idea behind that is that never do anything in Active Directory that you didn't think about. Because ultimately, anything you do that you don't think about is going to snowball into something that you'll have to think about later. And it can definitely be problematic. Um, a good example of that is if you've got a file share and you put a single user on that file share, uh, a decade from now, you're going to have that file share with two or 300 SSR, SIDs in there that don't relate to a username anymore. And you're going to have a hard time cleaning all that up. So we're going to kind of go through some ideas there that might help that out from an administrative perspective. Uh, but the idea here is just that the overview on domains is don't do anything without at least considering the goods, the bads, um, you know, what it looks like in five years, what it looks like tomorrow. So getting right on with that, uh, naming conventions. Now, naming conventions, I'm not going to give you a this is how you should do it because it's going to vary in every single circumstance. Uh, what I will say about it, though, is that you need to think about how you're going to do it and you need to be consistent with it. Now, from a attacker's perspective, right? We're going to say, why could this be painful for an attacker? Well, I'll give you a really good example. Um, from a help desk perspective, this needs to be simple. You'd want to cut down the administrative overhead. However, from the attacker's perspective, if you can do something like making the UPN, the username that's logged on, yeah, a typical one, right, is like first name dot last name. But what if it was first name dot last name hyphen and then a four digit random code? Now, that sounds really complicated from maybe uh, an attacker's perspective because now they have to guess what that four digit code is. Uh, but that would be actually part of the username, not the password. And the idea there is to make it so that you can't just guess what a username is based off the context of knowing someone. Uh, similarly with, with groups, you know, it's, it's useful to have groups that have a consistent name. An example of that are, you know, security groups could be SCC underscore and then what the context of the security group is. But you could also make sure that those groups could be obscured to mean something other than what they say, but still have an obvious meaning to the help desk. Um, there are some really great applications out there as well that basically put a database front end uh, in front of a LDAP back end. And it allows you to have group names in Active Directory that are completely meaningless, just completely arbitrary. But then the database front end that gives like a, a web app view to the uh, groups can actually drive that and make it more meaningful from the, from the web uh, front end perspective. And those are things that can be devised that really help out with that. So we just got an awesome question. Yeah. Um, John is asking, why not deploy a bastion forest in AD? And I said, I am reading about it now. <laughs> I, I have literally zero experience deploying advanced AD forests. Absolutely. And, and bear in mind that we did kind of talk about things. We're going to be talking about things here that are like quick things that you can do. Um, either... Now, obviously, some of these aren't going to be quick if you're 10 years matured in the environment. They're going to be things that if you were setting up 
um, a new environment, you could set these up relatively easily without too much risk. Um, but yeah, it's an excellent point. There are a ton of things that you could do to make life just miserable for attackers. And the whole reason we, uh, as pen testers, we don't want them to be miserable for, for us, but at the same time we do, because it is kind of boring if we just pull the, the low hanging fruit and that's our, you know, our results. We want it to be much more difficult than that. And it's also a lot more fun when we get to, to look at things that are not just looking for we get in there and actually get to exploit things and write code and that type of stuff. Um, at the same time though, you know, it's things that we get in here and we're gonna look at it and there's things you're gonna say, we just, we can't do that, that we're, there's no way we can get the change management processes for that. Oh, and uh, you're gonna have to balance that, right? Um, there's that risk and payoff reward there that you'd have to definitely can uh, look at. All right, so naming conventions and users, uh, again, Login and UPN, they don't have to be tied to a specific person. My username does not have to be kent.eichler. It could be kent.eichler-523179. I will remember that 523179, and that's all I really have to remember for my username because it's kent.eichler. But a pen tester now is going to have a really difficult time in trying to enumerate all, all of those uh, user accounts, especially when we go to use things like ReconNG. You know, we're going to go check out LinkedIn and try to find email addresses of um, users that are on the website. If you make it so that your email address is not your logon, and bear in mind, this is uh, MCST 2003, they would have told you, no, 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 make it all the same. Make sure your email address is the same as your user account because that's gonna be wonderful for employees. And it is wonderful for employees, it's, it's excellent. Um, it's not wonderful for security though. So if you kind of think about that 15 years later, now we're looking at it and saying, okay, we want to publish this, this email address on the website, but we don't want that email address also to be the username that user used to log in with. And that's where that uh, context between that UPN comes in, in Active Directory. Um, you know, make sure that uh, administrators, you want to be able to identify what an administrator account is for the help desk's sake, for the administrative overhead. But at that same time, the key piece here is the last bullet on this page, which is the admin does not equal the standard user. So if I were an Active Directory admin uh, over the entire environment, I would want to have a user account that I check my email with, that I run my help desk tickets with, that I you know, work with HR with. That absolutely is not going to be the same account that has any sort of administrative privileges. And then pick your other platform, right? Any platform on, on earth now, right? If you're looking at uh, Dropbox, you're looking at Box, you're looking at Google, you're looking at Azure, all these, yep. right? I will pay for the extra license every single time to have an obscured admin user. Absolutely. So yes, um, and someone's gonna say, well, wait, does that mean you're gonna have a shared account that is an administrator? Yes, no. I mean, there's things you could do with password management uh, solutions that can help with that. But the key thing there is that standard user is not equal to admin user and vice versa. Um, also, be able to identify who your contractors are, your vendor accounts uh, and service accounts. You want to be able to identify those for the help test perspective. Now, there's that question, does that really help the, or, or hinder the pen tester? Um, it really doesn't, I don't think, help or hurt too much. Um, really, what you're going to gain in the help desk being able to have a, a better uh, environment for them to work in is going to help and allow them to focus on the security aspects of their job as well. Very well said, sir. <laughs> I kind of want to let Jordan talk about this one. Yeah, so we're kind of working on our own container of honey data, right? Because if you're going to go and execute a pen test or you're going to go execute a training or something else, you need this giant chunk of data. And rarely on customer environments do we find cleanly laid out data. So we want to build our own. And basically the the convention here is file shares are applied via ACL, right? So we want ACLs to flow down. And Ken is exceptionally well-versed in the management of user ACLs, security ACLs, and even file migrations. But this is, file shares can be so messy. So we are even working on our, our own chunk of data that people can come and try to pen test down the chain. And, and bear in mind, so you should be able to look in your environment uh, and look at a piece of data that's on your file share and say, you should be able to answer who owns it, who's the primary point of contact for, and who needs access to it. And if you can answer those things in not so much terms of a person, like a name like Jordan, but if you can uh, put it into the context of this data is owned by the HR department, its point of contact is the HR department director, and if I need to make changes to this document, I need to contact X person who might be the liaison for the IT department in the HR department. Then we take a step back and we go back to our previous slide where we talk about users and we say, okay, so we had a user who goes into an ACL for marketing. That's all we have to do. This person is marketing, he is marketing. He gets all the file privileges flowing downward. As soon as we disable his account, we don't have to go trace uh, where he may have been individually applied permissions on a file or a file share. It's 
and, and we're going to kind of get into that. And there's something I call job functional security rules, which is for better, for worse, a huge platform, but we're going we're gonna to get into that. I'm still on naming conventions. Uh, we're going to talk about groups now. So you've got user groups, security groups, distribution groups, mail enabled security groups. And then this weird like quasi thing that Microsoft has in on domains called domain local groups, global groups, universal groups. And I think the majority of people, they understand the top four pretty easily, right? They, they know what those are for. User groups hold users. Security groups are used for security and distribution groups are used for email. Um, but when you come down to what's the difference between domain, local, global, and universal, um, again, I'll talk about MCSE 2003 because that's what I am. I haven't updated my search since then, which is funny because it's 15 years old. Uh, back in 2003, there was a maximum number of objects you could put in the Active Directory environment, and the number was relatively small. So it meant if you had a very large number of users in your organization, you had to have multiple domains, and each domain could have a set number of uh, objects. So if you had a lot of employees, you had a lot of domains, and inside that, you know, all those domains were laid together inside that forest. Um, it's not so much that much anyway. So now when we see domain forest with more than one domain, it's typically the result of a couple things. One is legacy. So that's something that came back in 2003 and they're still fighting this process of multiple domains. Um, that is one possibility. Uh, there was some best practices back in the day for having multiple domains based off geographic locations and it kind of helped with replication strategies and that type of thing of Active Directory. Those still exist. Uh, the other place that we see it now is in a lot of acquisitions. So you're going to have a large firm that acquires a smaller entity, and the way they incorporate that into their existing Active Directory environment is to build a forest trust and then bring that domain into their into their forest. All of that really doesn't need to exist so much anymore in 2018. Um, just because the way Active Directory works, you can put billions of objects in there and it doesn't matter. You, you know, if you hit that 20, uh, 2000 and first employee, you don't doesn't mean you have to create a new domain, which is what it used to mean. So a lot different. All right, so that last slide said, go for the jugular. And I know someone's gonna say, <laughs> what is that? All right, so <laughs> the jugular is something that needs to be really clever. And so it's a, it's an acronym, is that right? I, you created it, you tell me. <laughs> okay, so I, I think there's a I difference between acronyms be, and... Yes, uh, so I think what we need to, to point out here is I did not create this. This was uh, a very low-key idea that I had in school um, that my instructor told me about, and I can't remember who, when, where, or what. So props to him for creating it, I can't remember. But the idea is if you look at your group replication strategy and your group um, nesting strategy in the form of jugular. The J is just to remember it, so that's all it is. And then you've got users, global groups, universal groups, and local access to resources. So at the very top, you're gonna have users, okay? And those users should be in, we're gonna talk about job functional security roles, right? So a new employee should have access to what they need to do their job and nothing more. So the idea here is that a user group or user account is in a user group. That user group is about a job functional level, something like um, the marketing department supervisor, right? And then that global group could be inside of another global group called marketing department and so on and so forth. But the idea here and the really key piece to this is at the very bottom, it says resources and those are ACL. So they're file shares, printers, um, remote desktop, VPN, et cetera. The idea here is that you never ever put a user account into an ACL. Now, there's several reasons for that, but one of them is that if you have a user that uh, employment is terminated, the account removed from Active Directory, you've now got a SID listed inside that ACL that is forever gone. And it's always going to be a pain in the butt. But if you look at it from this perspective, you put user accounts into groups and you put the groups into security groups, which are domain local, then you can now apply those domain local groups to the security context, to the ACLs. And you never again have to go to the scenario that you're giving a single person access to a single file. It's always going to be justified by some sort of HR mandate, such as the marketing department needs access to marketing files. They don't need access to accounting files. Or if they do need access to accounting files, it's already been pre-described because they're working on a project together. And it gets away from the perspective of one person having access to a single file because because. Um, and I will have to have a, a huge blog post on this because it's much more involved than that. Um, the jugular actually came from how replication strategies worked in Active Directory where you would replicate only the minimal amount of data across a low bandwidth trap, uh, low bandwidth link to still utilize uh, forest trust. So that's kind of where it all started. In today's environment, you can use it if you have a single domain just like this where you're, you're applying access control list to users 
through groups. So a best practice helps with the help desk. And from the pen test perspective, um, if we can find a username on a file, it kind of helps us. But if we have to go start looking through groups, it just becomes a pain in the butt. Even if they're well-named, it really starts to make pain for us. So if we leave an Active Directory account disabled permanently, do we strip group membership? Does that remove them from the ACL if the account is compromised and re-enabled in some way? Sure. Well, it would it would strip their their physical access. It'd strip their access because the account's disabled, and Active Directory Active Directory wouldn't be able to uh, authorize them access to the account. But at the same time, more importantly, what that does is it removes all the replication traffic from having to to push that ACL and all those groups around. So, you know, disabling an account works. I think the big point, there's a best practice about when you disable a user account due to employment termination, you remove all their, your user groups and security groups. And the reason for that was if someone accidentally re-enabled that account for whatever reason, um, it would get re-enabled in a very minimal security context where the user might be able to access, you know, they might be able to log in and that's it. Um, the idea there is that they wouldn't have access to files because their account got re-enabled. So that is definitely something that, and that's usually listed in like uh, policies, procedures for HR and IT department, how they handle offloading. Jeff has one more question. Yeah. If there is a single domain, would it be better to use AGDLP and just discard universal groups altogether? You can discard universal groups. Um, there is a caveat there. Uh, the big caveat is exchange. So if you've got on-prem exchange or, you, or if you're not using ADFS to... Uh, sync your Azure AD and your on-prem AD, you're going to run into some problems. Um, Act or, excuse me, Exchange works with the GAL. The GAL stores all, act or all universal groups. So if you've got a group membership that's nested inside of universal groups, you're good in Exchange. But if you're using Exchange and you try to load like a domain local group for a security context, it won't work. And the reason it won't work is it's because Exchange references the GAL. They don't reference Action Directory directly. Hmm. Awesome. So thanks. Thanks. Oh, this one's me again, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Tear it up, man. Okay, group Killing policies. It today. We might have to speed up, but group policies. So uh, this is a really great one that I came out, uh, did not come up with. The same class that I took earlier, LSDOU. Um, it's funny because it has LSD in it. I don't know. Um, so the idea here is local site domain OU. And the idea is when you apply a group policy, this is the way they're going to flow down and the way that they're going to get applied and uh, reiterated and replaced. So if you apply a group policy, a local group policy at the local level, that can be uh, replaced or overridden by a group policy that's listed at the site, and then the domain, and then the OU, and then any other ODUs that are nested inside that. So it's just a really quick way to remember uh, how those group policies are applied. They apply at the start, which is the local machine, and then the site and active directory, then the domain, OU, and the nested OUs, so LSDOU. Uh, LSDOU is really important when you start making computer policies and user policies and how those apply in Active Directory, specifically for group policies. Uh, and then things like loop, loopback processing mode and uh, how password policies all roll together and things like that. So it's just a really great way if you're able to apply your group members or your group policies at the highest level that is appropriate, it cuts down on administrative overhead. And, you know, from the attacker's perspective, um, it's really not going to slow us down that much because we don't spend too much time looking at group policies with exception to one thing. I'm going to let you cover this one. Yeah, def default domain policy. This this should be very skinny, right? We configure this to only cover our password and account lockouts. That's all that matters in this policy. That's all this policy should cover. You can do a lot more in here, but Microsoft's best practices here are what is stated here. And I would keep going. We're going to cover this more, and we've got a lot of slides. Sure. So. So uh, GPP group policy preferences uh, pre 2014-025 uh, from Microsoft. Those passwords were stored in group policy preferences in a very insecure way, or not in very insecure, but insecure. So an attacker could look at a group policy, and if you had a password specified there to do a certain action, like run a script or create a user account, we could essentially go and grab that password and a yay win for us. It was a low hanging fruit. So if those preferences existed prior to this with the passwords, you could still apply the patch and not solve the problem. This is something you should go do as a system administrator. If you have old legacy domains, things that have been migrated, updated over time, make sure you don't have GPP lying around. It's the first thing, I mean, first or second thing we check on your network. Absolutely. Generally what, we launch LLMNR and then go look for GPP? Yes. <laughs> two, two very easy wins if they're there. Um, and with those uh, group policies, if you have legacy ones that have uh, group policy preference passwords in them, I think the, the best idea there is to delete them and create the new policy uh, after MS 14.025. And that at least gets you a more secure way of storing that password in the Active Directory uh, for your policies. 
Uh, the lower right hand of that window there is Metasploit. And to give you an idea how easily we just pull passwords out of there, we just run that Metasploit command in. Goes and looks at Sysvol in the environment. Done. That's it, yeah. yeah. So again, this is where we deployed Windows Server 2016 brand new. And the defaults are still not good enough. They're not, they're just not. I think we get to a slide that covers the password policies that are on by default. Not good enough. Um, Windows Defender, okay, not good enough. No application whitelisting in place, though there's all kinds of awesome new protections in Server 2016. LLM&R, still on by default, across the board. Multi-factor authentication, not enforced, not forced. So, I mean, this is the latest domain controller offering we've got. Still not good enough. It's time. It's getting there. Yeah, it's getting there. It's getting better. <laughs> So uh, this is, I love this, it's the, your device is being protected and, uh, oh really? Because, um, is it good enough or is that default that you've got that set up? So bear in mind, um, default settings are not enough and we definitely want to take a look at that anytime you try to deploy something, make sure you look at those settings and make sure they're confirmed uh, and built for the way you want. Um, I love this screenshot because it's the Windows Firewall from XP. Um, both sides are the screenshot from XP, in fact. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Windows Firewall, um, for better or for worse, right? It's actually a lot better than it used to be. I think now, even at the default deployment, it's still, it's pretty useful. I think the key piece, though, is that it's not as user-friendly as other products out there. So, you know, it prompts up and says, hey, you're on a network, what should I do? And then you have to like force users to, to like read it and figure out what they're supposed to do, try to figure out what the best answer is. Um, use a group policy. If they're on the domain, say, hey, you're at a Starbucks coffee shop. I'm not even going to let you on the wireless network. And that's okay. Or, you know, force a VPN in that process as well. So turn uh, on host-based firewalls. The, the, right here bottom is, line. the point here is turn on your host-based firewall. It needs to be on everywhere. It needs to be on your servers. Only allow ports that you expect to, uh, communication to occur on. We do have a question here that's worth addressing, yeah. right? Why is Defender just not quite good enough? And really, it's not quite good enough because it's like any other AV product. You turn it on, but are you capturing alerts? Are they going to your central repositories? Do you have audit enabled on the system? Are you doing it, the things that make antivirus important to help desk, yes. right? Are you, go ahead. I will say that Defender can be enough if it's configured properly. So the key thing here is you can't just turn it on and forget about it. I mean, that might work in certain environments, but it's not going to be very strong. We're talking about turning it on, go look through and make sure that you've got it configured for how your environment needs it to be configured securely, such as report that stuff to a SIM so that you can have someone look at that later on. By default, you know, Defender's not gonna do that. It's not gonna have anywhere to send those to. So. Have them enabled and uh, you know do things like that that configure Defender to be more useful. Obviously, there's hundreds of other products out there, very large name products um, that can do very similar things that are more turnkey, right? And they're more turnkey, and that's why they're uh, additional third-party products. I think we can invoke John's uh, antivirus statement there. Which uh, is toilet paper. Toilet paper, like it's a commodity. You have is. to have it. You have Something. Have it. it doesn't really matter what kind it is, but you have to have it. it you're Some is better than others. <laughs> Some is better than others. We have one more question. So where can you find a doc about proper defender config? Awesome. We can link one out. Yeah, we'll find something. We might write a blog for it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Brilliant. Blog ideas. All right. Okay, so yeah, uh, again, brand new server 2016, out of the box, open the default domain policy, go look at the password setting, and what do we have? They're still recommending, well, I don't know if this is a recommendation of Microsoft or just a decision they've made to leave things in a state where it's easy to guess domain passwords. Seven, it's not enough. It's just, it's not enough. So I've, I've included a, a screenshot there of uh, the Hashcat cheat sheet that I wrote a couple months ago. Um, and one of the interesting things here, uh, this is key, saw, key space exhaustion at 229 gigahash a second. Um, big terms, right? But the point here is that seven characters, it's going to take us 35 seconds to generate all different hashes based off all lowercase characters. And that's pretty impressive. That means if your password is seven uh, lowercase letters, we're going to guess it in less than 35 seconds. Um, the same thing said, though, if it's 20 alphanumeric characters, um, this is 2.2 trillion solar orbits around the center of the Milky Way, which is a really <laughs> big number. Um, and it's, it's interesting to take a look at that because of how that progresses into some, something that is so awfully huge. And obviously, we wouldn't be able to crack it in 35 seconds, right? There's a Monty Python reference galaxy song in there. How far you travel in a day. <laughs> so the point here is that uh, seven characters is not enough. If someone asks what is enough, we will typically say 20. 
uh, 20 alphanumerics. So, and then here's the great thing is, if you say 20 alphanumerics and someone makes it 20 lowercase characters, yeah, that's 20 characters long. It'd be really great if they added a one there, because that's really going to confuse you all over again. So, oh, absolutely. So someone asked, is 23 still considered a borderline for uncrackable presently? I think at 15, you're into the septillions, right? Yeah. If you're looking at key space, right, and you take 15 characters, and all of them could be any of the four, right, our lower, upper, num numeric, and specials, that key space at 15 is septillions. Yeah, and, and uncrackable means a lot of different things, right? So right. the way passwords are typically stored is with a hash value, and when you enter your password into Windows, it's going to take the password that you entered and create a hash from it, and then it's going to compare those two hashes to make sure they're the same. Um, so the way most password cracking techniques works is they just create all the ha possible hashes, and once they find one that matches, they know what the password is. Um, that said, what we're really talking about here is offsetting the limited security context that's in the low of seven-character password, and we're going to try to offset that by making it really long. But then the next low-hanging fruit piece for password becomes where passwords are stored in plain text. Or um, if I know someone really likes... Uh, a certain football team, I can make a word list based off that football team. Dictionaries so, are everything when we crack now. Absolutely. I mean, that's just So we talk about, you know, 20 alphanumeric characters are, it's impossible to break if it's truly randomized characters. But on the case of, if it's a word list and all the words are more than, you know, seven characters long, we're talking about three words and we might have a list of 400 words to work out. You know, it's, we're gonna do it really quickly. And that kind of comes into then, you gotta take your word list and you gotta make sure that you have uh, words are spelled wrong and that type of stuff. Just be, be cautious of that. And this is the staple horse something something. XKCD. all right. So yes, they have definitely upgraded the minimum, the maximum value for minimum password length, right? You can now force at server 2016, forest functional level across the board, 20 character minimum. You can do 15 character minimum, right? And then you can also go disable the landman storage thing because if you're less than 15, right, it's stored in LM and LM is easy. And so there's all kinds of other fun features in server 2016 worth investigating. Some of them are mentioned here. The code in integrity check policies also allow you to or force integrity checks on the code that runs in your environment so that Windows doesn't trust code that isn't signed, generally speaking, across the board. And you just use Windows for that. You don't need like a third-party product? Absolutely not. Group That's policy. Awesome. Yep. That is super awesome. So um, we're going to talk about some of the key terms here, like Landman. If you're not familiar with that, just check out our blog, search Landman on our blog post. You're going to find a lot about it and all the detail you need to know about why it's a bad thing. So moving forward, um, so we, we talked about the password policy. Um, you know, and why those need to be longer passwords. Uh, you've got a blog post there that kind of talk about in more detail for pre-2016 force levels. Um, so that's out there as well. And uh, yeah, yep. length, complexity, blah, blah. Dead horse here. 2.2 trillion orbits around the something, something. Yeah, skip one. There we go. So uh, do not store landman ashes. We already talked about that one too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Don't do that. <laughs> and I just show that location of that slide. Uh, we do have a couple more questions. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Time for those? Sure, yeah. swing. Okay. Um, what if you have weak passwords, but uh, the ability to, to detect abuse is good enough to pick this up quickly? For example, if you run ProcDump, it can be quickly picked up, or if you run LLMNR, can it quickly? Yes, that sounds like a reactive policy. That's very reactive. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, better would be not to allow someone to guess that password as opposed to allow them to guess it and then react to them having guessed it, um, which I think is is pretty, you know, it's kind of obvious, but... Um, so running LLMNR isn't really the thing. It's running a tool that exploits LLMNR. So if you leave systems on your network at default, they will communicate with LLMNR when they can't resolve names. Then we jump in and say, poison. So you need to catch the execution of... Uh, obfuscated PowerShells that run things like Inve or um, Responder. These are the things you need to trigger on on your network. So, so Matthew also wants to know, can you enforce multiple password policies based on OU? Yes, you can. Yes, uh, so 2008 could... plus function levels can. Um, I believe that is called fine-grained password policies. Uh, you will find them in the Active Directory I'll have to look it up, but it's definitely there. It's not done in the typical uh, 
uh, group policy structure uh, management console. You have to do it in a separate section of Active Directory, but they could do it in 2008. So um, pre-2008, yeah, you could have one group policy, or sorry, one password policy for the entire domain. It is much different now based off uh, OUs and then also based off group membership. So you can do it differently Oops. I sent that privately unintentionally. So some of these uh, different things that uh, attacker will typically use, things like Mail Sniper, Hydra, you know, G1WA um, brute force. The idea here is that you want to limit the exposure to that. And something that I will still say is, you know, you can have your email behind a VPN and that will freak some people out. But say you need to access your email remotely, um, well, it's behind a VPN. How do I get it on my phone if it's behind a VPN? Okay, there's solutions for that. You can install you know, a VPN certificate on the phone so that that mail application on the phone utilizes the VPN. But the key thing here is uh, user on the internet can't scan your network and find the OWA portal and start password spraying all of your user accounts. So it's kind of a key thing there. Um, and these are things that attackers look for. And if we find MS, uh, the OWA portal, we're going to try to brute force against it. Whether or not that is passwords we found in uh, public breaches or passwords that we've been able to build from a word list. All these things. And you know, integrate, like, and take that attempt of NTLM and gather domain information. Right? You expose that portal to the internet, we can go learn about your internal domain just by you exposing OWA. So yeah, I mean, you definitely want to have uh, sim knowledge of what's happening here. If someone tries to do a password spray, you want to be able to identify that. But ultimately, you're able to mitigate a lot of that just by putting your services behind a VPN. Obviously, again, that is painful, but there's ways around it. Yes, so just the password policy has slowed every single one of these attacks down that we do every single test. Depending on the test, one of these tools will be in play against your network, right? So extending your password policy will make it much less likely that we capture creds. Like on the next slide, I think Mike says, oh, no, it's moving out there in the future. But anyway, creds are king as pen testers as attackers if you make your passwords longer it is factors more difficult for us um john wants to know is there a checkbox to disallow the use of the same password for one's regular domain account and their privileged admin account well it wouldn't be a checkbox because there's no association yep. between user and admin and, accounts and you wouldn't want there to be uh, a link between the two either in right. fact your admin account could just be a random character admin underscore random characters it's meaningful to uh, the help desk into this. It could be a system. six digit random string. It could Absolutely. be anything. Um, so no, there's not. Now, whether or not that's a, that sounds like a, sounds like a, where's the dice at? Your business you need a policy for that. We um, also failed to mention Cred Defense, which is a tool uh, Brian Furman is working on, which is a brilliant piece of software that you install on your domain controllers, right? Nobody likes to install things on their domain controllers, but it does protect your environment from passwords that you don't like. You define the list you don't like. It can also analyze passwords and compare user passwords, how many people are reusing hashes, how many people are, uh, but this, again, that would go back to Landman, yep. because Landman hashes aren't salted, they're all stored exactly the same. If I use password and he uses password, the hash is exactly the same in the AD dictionary. Less salted, but yes, in Landman, they would be absolutely the same. So, you know, you might be able to find that if the characters are less, than, or if it's less than 14 characters long, uh, and Landman is enabled, but ultimately, you know, it's going to be one of those things. What you could do that might help is make your uh, use different password policies. Um, one with that has a, a longer length requirement, and that'd be okay. And that would be a quick way to probably mitigate that. But ultimately, if they're using the same password, I don't think that's necessarily such a bad deal as long as you've got passwords, um, the password policy that makes sure those are long, long enough that they're really insignificant and that the risk is mitigated. So LMNR, we just kind of talked about it. Um, disable it. It's a super easy uh, thing to disable. Typically doesn't break anything, but if you've got a 10-year-old legacy environment, you want to look into it first. Um, but if you're setting up a new environment, first step, shut it off on your domain. Uh, we've got a blog post there that tells you how to do that with some screenshots, super, super easy to do. Uh, and journal, let's talk about LAPS. Excellent, love this tool. Um, this is something that you should deploy now. There's no reason not to. And whether, you, whether or not your environment is ready for this, basically, you run a PowerShell script that extends your schema by these two attributes. We are going to, in the next slide, go ahead and go. We are going to deploy that installer via group policy, which we saw in the previous. We're going to extend the schema by two attributes. We're going to allow systems in a container we like, whatever container we're applying laps to, to write back into those attributes. And then we are going to limit access to the attributes, make them confidential, right, to everyone except our privileged group. So that's what we're doing here. Then we can go to our Labs UI and say, 
I need the AD password for, or I apologize, the administrator password, local administrator password for this computer. Boom, there it is. Done. Okay, so Problem solved. The other side of that is uh, you'd have a group policy that set a local administrator password and username for all the workstations in an environment, right? And then the attacker only needs to find that one password and they immediately have local admin on all of those workstations. Um, lab, what Labs does instead is it creates those user accounts and those passwords and allows those passwords to rotate all the time. No longer can an attacker get one password and potentially have attacks on all the systems across the entire domain uh, based off local security uh, access. So uh, application whitelisting is somewhat controversial, but it's still becoming more mainstream. Um, the really cool part is you don't need extra products to do it, but extra products might make it more helpful or easier to use, user-friendly. So uh, there's products out there that already exist in Windows. You know, AppLocker is out there. Uh, you can also do things like uh, hash-based signatures and uh, code signing from, from Windows itself without other products. Do you have uh, more on that? Uh, well, yeah, no, I don't think so. I sub T is too good to like let this slide roll by without mentioning. Um, yes, we know you can gain execution in about 3,000 different contexts. I think he's probably figured out how to use calc to like run code. So, uh, regardless, our point here is it's time to think about application whitelisting, it's time to um, layer our defenses, which is required. Um, there, there's some more slides coming up. I think the next slide, go ahead, where we talk about actually identifying the executables we don't want to run and not necessarily by the name and location, which is easily bypassable, but by the publisher. So these are rules we configured. It makes it so much more difficult on a pen test or as an attacker to gain a foothold if I can't get to command.exe, if I can't get to syswow64 PowerShell ISEEXE which is nice when it's there, but if you're restricting it in this way, you know, it's factors more difficult. Yeah, and, and the idea here is to apply multiple multiple attributes for your whitelisting so that an example is a lot of uh, antivirus software and they're looking for malware, if they find, uh, you know, PowerShell uh, inside of uh, an application, they're like, oh, that could be bad, but if you make it power and then, you know, break it to the next line and then shell, I mean, it allows it right through, right? Because it doesn't recognize it as PowerShell. So mm -hmm. things like that, you want to use, use the multiple uh, attributes to identify your whitelisting, and I think that would help. Out I have renamed well. PowerShell EXE and bypassed. I think it's, uh, yeah, the restrictions, software restrictions or something. Mm -hmm. So just depends on how it's configured and deployed. So you had a, a recent engagement where Sysmon was used, and oh my gosh, I there there wasn't a single thing we executed on this environment that the customer wasn't like, hey, I see you running long PowerShell scripts. Hey, I see you uh, attempting to bypass our firewall with SSH, and <laughs> I, I mean it was it's amazing. So we're mentioning Sysmon because it can provide a layer of visibility to your workstations and your environment that you may not have now. So um, the script or the uh, configuration file linked at the bottom of this slide covers almost everything, is well-maintained, and is very interesting. Curious, so, uh, what's the code on Sysmon? About how much, how many thousands of dollars is that? <laughs> I assume this is a joke and you're being sarcastic. I Again, I think we're at zero dollars so far besides the AWS environment. Uh, you gotta pay for Windows Phone. Oh, and I, actually, in Amazon, um, the really cool part of that you told All me baked. Is, is the licensing for Windows is baked into their, their yep. uh, solution, so. That's kind of covers awesome user calls, covers remote access, covers Windows licensing, everything. All right, so moving on. <laughs> Sessions left lying around. Um, this is really cool, and it kind of brings back to uh, to Bloodhound and how that all works. But I'll let you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the goal of a pen tester, the goal of this, of an attacker, is to extend access in any possible direction they can. Right. If I find a user, I'm going to use Bloodhound to see if that user can see other things in the environment. Yes. As the user, I'm generally handed on a pivot. I have domain context, so I can go use Bloodhound to identify interesting sessions that may be around the environment and where even my account might have administrative access. But something Mike says, creds are king, right? We want more creds. We want to be able to get further. We want to find systems where I'm a local administrator, where there's a DA session so we can meet the cats. Absolutely. And uh, that brings in, you know, limit your local administrators and obviously log so, out. So we're talking about the uh, inactivity timer group policy, yes. right? That's what we're, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah. No, we are not. It's hard to log out inactive domain 
admin accounts. It's, it's hard to log out any account that is inactive on a system where the system is still on. Yep. So I think I've seen environments where you have to like have an application running that looks for user input. And if it doesn't have it, even if the session is already locked, after an additional set of time, finally it actively logs that session out. And it, that's like not super easy. Yeah. So uh, Martin's asking an interesting question. Is MFA a good mitigation against password spraying? If we went back to the attack tactic slide where we show burp, I'm going to send credentials and intercept them with burp to your authentication portal. Then I'm going to run an entire list of users against a password that I've chosen. I can tell the accounts that I have valid credentials for based on response. So the response changes on an account. I go, look, it says successful authentication, now MFA. We have valid credentials, mm -hmm. but we don't have access yet. It just... I'd also like to bring up MailSniper um, will bypass MFA on OWA. Assuming you leave EWS lying around. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. There's two pieces to that. Yes. Uh, so the key thing here is just layer it like an onion, right? Yes. So the, so the slide we have here talks about um, hackery for systems. So you deploy an application on all your systems that monitors inactive sessions. And yes, then they get logged off. So to address your question, Tim. All right, so this is our last slide too. And I've got some last minute things to bring up. Point here is get a pen test, scan yourself, clean up and do it over again and do it over again and do it over again and do it over again. That will make your security posture just continually get better and better. Um, don't disclose internal network knowledge externally. So if you've got OWA set up, if you've got a web server set up that you're hosting on the internet, go run that through Burp. Make sure that you're not having your local IPs in there or your local domain names, anything like that. You don't want to ex uh, expose that. Exchange is a whole other basket of low-hanging fruit, cough, mail sniper. BitLocker, all the things. Empower your support team and help desk. So my background is I, I ran a help desk for quite a while. Uh, empower them. You know, Get them in touch with HR. Let them work with HR. Let them understand and, and work through the business policies and procedures. Let them make your security posture better. Don't just think that they're there to answer the phone calls. They are your eyes and ears on the ground in security context, and they're going to be the ones that are there first. So make sure you utilize them and empower them. Yeah, don't expose EWS. I, I, yeah. I might not understand all the technical back end of Exchange, but I don't believe it needs to be exposed for Exchange to function properly on the Internet. And have a process that requires manager confirmed password resets from direct reports. So um, the example is that, hey, I forgot my password. Um, the next thing should be, I need to go talk to my supervisor, and the supervisor needs to talk to IT or HR or whatever. Um, it should not be that I just call help desk and get my password reset. Um, there's a lot of products out there that actually utilize multiple forms of authentication and identification to allow a single user to reset their own password. It can work, but ultimately, if you have that stopgap in there where you're requiring a supervisor to do it, it'll to do two things. Increase your security posture, and it might help your employees remember their passwords because they don't want to have to go to their supervisor and ask, hey, I forgot my password. That's never fun. All right, I think there were some questions we want to go there over. There were, um, and I'm not sure if you just answered part of this because I was responding to somebody, but Robert was wondering, obviously, any suggestion on securing EWS, and is there any real difference with EWS in the MS Cloud versus on... On-prem yeah. client access or... So you don't need EWS exposed for typical mail flow, right? You need EWS for um, web services on like your phone, uh, to use OWA, things like that. Um, but just to receive mail to your mail server and to be able to send mail, you don't need those services turned on, or at least not exposed to the external internet. That said, um, if you tell someone, hey, yeah, you can't actually check your email on your phone or on your laptop because you're not inside the on-premise network, um, that's kind of painful, right? And it's not conducted to business. But look at uh, setting up VPN, looking at setting up mobile device management. Some mobile device management uh, applications will allow you to take the like Outlook uh, application on the phone and say, this application must use this VPN, right? So then you're allowing to basically shut off EWS entirely, and you're going to utilize that VPN for that application to access those mail services and get emailed that way. Um, you could technically, in that way, uh, completely remove your exposure of mail to the internet uh, and just utilize those VPNs for those applications. So then, I, I guess just a wrap, right? There's going to be some more questions. But what we're saying here is the basis of everything we do as pen testers can be slowed down. Are we red teaming your organization? Improved your password policy? 
do things like don't expose OWA? Are we doing a wireless pen test? How long are your passwords? Are we going to be able to crack them assuming we do trick one of your users in connecting to our evil AP? Are we doing an internal pen test where we scan everything and you give us access? Improve your password policy, right? Everything we do generally boils down to the length of the passwords on your network and whether we can extend our access easily or not. John asked if a domain admin could scan domain user passwords hashes and compare them to domain admin password hashes. Landman, yes. However, if you're not throwing landman password hashes, no, because Active Directory salts those uh, user accounts or those hashes, so you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, they wouldn't match right uh, left to right. You'd have to have, be able to salt them and compare the salts. So. All right, and then. Or you would so have to unsalt them. You'd have to unsalt <laughs> them or salt your. Uh, your tech, yes. Uh, Device Guard, again, is a Server 2016-based deployment. It includes things like hypervisor monitoring. So you can now install Windows Server on virtualization platform of your choice and still have it monitor boot kernel processes in a meaningful way, right? If I'm running malware and I have an opportunity to inject through the heap some kind of nasty thing into boot, Device Guard can help, right? Are we going to deploy code integrity policy Yes, check, please do this. This is a, a huge step forward for Windows. Now I can't run malware that I don't sign on your environment. This is amazing, like this is a huge step. And yes, you can force this down to your Windows 10 systems. I haven't read enough about it to know if it goes backwards in time to Windows 7, but now if I'm looking at an upgraded domain, I definitely wanna to get to 2016 functional level across the board. I mean, yes, it's hard, but it's worth it. Jason had a, a quick question here. He said, if uh, currently passwords are less than 15 characters and they make them more than 15 characters, what happens to the landman hashes? Gone. Uh, they, well, they stay, I believe, and they will be, they're gonna stay there, will they not? No. They no, you, wipe, Windows they wiped on the next password change. Yes, if you okay. change your previously stored landman hash to a password of greater yes. than 14, which is 15 or better, it will not be stored as landman anymore. Correct, but the key thing there is the user does oh, have to change the password. they stay in the history. That's super interesting. That is very interesting. Um, there, there was one more question about LLMNR I wanted to talk about where um, somebody asked about the implications of, say I run IPv6 on an internal network and I disable LLMNR. Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a very interesting one, right? If I'm using Anycast to resolve my router, find routers on my network, I don't necessarily need LLMNR to do that, but the advertisements in DHCP v6 are LLMNR. Am I, I, I think, I like if I understand, so I, I don't know. What about if you have a, a legacy stuff like an AS400 that needs LLMNR? <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> that, that happens. happens. <laughs> oh, that happens. Um, what is the status, uh, the support status of an AS400 these days? <laughs> <laughs> That's tough. I have no clue. Yeah, um, I mean, I know AS400s are still around. I know they're still used everywhere. I know people still use green screens on them. Um, whether or not that correlates to using them as legacy and um, how they you know, can work with Windows 2016, it's a great question. Ultimately, if you have to use LMNR, excuse me, um, if you haven't used AS400 and you have to use landman hashes um, to authenticate with it, that's kind of a big one. Uh, it really is. Um, We'll maybe look at the couple million dollar project to move that into an AWS cloud. Yeah. That's pretty tough. I mean, what I can say about that is you're dealing with legacy, and that that's the one thing I've brought up throughout this whole thing is that's that's the key headache, right? This is easy to set up if you're setting it up first time. It's a lot more difficult if you're looking at legacy stuff, and certainly with an AS400, you're gonna you're gonna feel that pain. That said, that wouldn't deactivate landman hashes because you could potentially destroy your authentication mechanism for the AS400. But try it. You know, get a get a uh, development environment set up and try it. See what happens. I suspect it would probably fail if it's uh, reliant on it. But there also might be middle tier services that you can put in there that allow uh, a middle tier authentication service as a stopgap until you get that million dollar project pushed out to get that converted. Uh, dackles and Sackles, I love yes. Dackles and Sackles. Oh, God, uh, and how about eye cackles? Let's I just tackles, swing, yeah. do it. Um, God, were, I love this okay. guy's knowledge about so, Microsoft. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so Dackles, Sackles, and eye cackles. Uh, what I would suggest is doing an all from command line because you can, and you can essentially uh, enumerate all, all permissions from eye cackles, 
and bear with me, I'm thinking about seven, eight years ago when I did this last, so you're gonna have to bear with me, but write a loop inside of the batch file, um, export all of that to a CSV, import that CSV into Access, <laughs> and then you're able to make que SQL queries in Access off your, you know, off your, uh, God, that's exactly. incredible. So you can definitely do that. It's really interesting. I haven't heard anybody say those words in, in seven years. So thank you for that. God, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I used to use, I remember our last domain migration, iCackles and what all that magic. Yes, absolutely. Look at, I know it's silly, but look at command line stuff. Write a loop that goes out and looks at every file, share in every file. Dump that, all those, uh, all those ACLs to a, uh, an access database and then run queries off of them and um, maybe put an intern on that and that'll help. Thank you so much for coming and joining us and listening. So thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Ken, for thank you. Oh, thank you, Sierra. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much. You've been awesome. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Are you enjoying these podcasts? We'd love if you could leave a review for us. And while you're at it, tell a friend. The best advertising is always word of mouth. Do you have other questions, comments? Email me, sierra at bhas.co. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Uh, next webcast, can we get fake Sierra and Sierra? We got an email from John on Thursday last week saying, can I see the slides before your webcast? Oh, sure. That would preclude that we made them before. You know, that's coming from him. I've seen him work on classes. <laughs> Five minutes before the class starts. So John's still working on slides sometimes when we're doing pre-show banter. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm.